Welcome to the Language Mastery Show, a weekly podcast bringing you expert tips for getting fluent anywhere in the world. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. For show notes, visit languagemastery.com forward slash show. Scott H. Young is a Canadian writer, programmer, entrepreneur, and meta-learning expert. He is the author of the best-selling book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career, and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the BBC, Popular Mechanics, Business Insider, and Lifehacker. He has applied and refined his principles in a number of accelerated learning challenges, from completing MIT's four-year undergraduate computer science curriculum in just one year, to spending a year abroad in four countries with a no-English rule, to a one-month at-home challenge to learn Macedonian his wife's native language. And you can learn more about Scott's learning adventures and principles at scotthyoung.com. What did I miss? You got it all? Jeez. Yeah. Oh, thank you. (laughs) When you read it all out, I don't know whether I can live up to that, but it'll be fun talking to you anyways. Yeah. Well, it's a high bar. Yeah. Your past self. (laughs) So we'll see how we do. So you wrote the book, Ultra Learning, which I (laughs) absolutely loved. Uh, It's dripping with yellow highlights and (laughs) earmarks and, and marginalia which is always a good sign. Um, you have nine principles you share in the book right. for accelerated learning. One of them that I think is really particularly valuable and applicable to language learning. They're all applicable. Yeah. This one, I think in particular, is the idea of directness. Mm-hmm. So one of them is directness, go straight ahead. Can you give us some examples of what direct and indirect learning look right. like in language learning? Yeah, so I mean, the the one that I use in the book, which I think I've softened on a little bit since I wrote it, but was like comparing using Duolingo to like actually having a conversation with someone. And I think there can be some benefit to using Duolingo. I don't want to say there's zero benefit, but it's very clear that the mental processes that you use in completing Duolingo puzzles are not a good overlap for what you do when you're actually speaking. There's a lot omitted. When you actually speak, you have to construct sentences. You have to construct those sentences where you are often working around the fact that you maybe don't have certain vocabulary. So there's a little bit of an accommodation skill there. There's retrieving the words from memory as opposed to noticing them two inches below your, you know, focal viewpoint in the word bank and selecting them. So there's a lot of things that make actually speaking a language quite a bit harder than Duolingo. And so what often happens is people play the Duolingo game, they collect the gemstones, they get their badges and their banners And then they go off to the country and where is all this, you know, fluency that they've been developing? They don't have it. And so I think one thing I will say is that it is possible to sort of practice on components of a skill. So it's possible to work on, you know, your grammar through grammar drills. I don't want to say that everything has to be, you know, in the real fully fleshed situation, but I think a real problem with highly academic or, you know, not even academic, just sort of like toy kind of practice is that you omit things that you need to actually be good at. And it's very clear that our performance at a lot of skills is sort of a product of all the component skills. So if you're missing one of those, the performance just goes to zero. And this can be very discouraging, I think, for that transition. So my advice in a direct learning context is to figure out what it is that you're actually trying to perform at. Now, in language learning, I think there's also a second added benefit of this because we can split up language learning into uh, learning to listen, to write, to read, and to speak. I think those are kind of the four basic categories of of language proficiency. And then, of course, there's, you know, elements within that. 
And what also seems to be clear to me is that being able to understand a sentence and being able to produce the sentence are also different skills. And so we can get into that a little bit as well. But I tend to be pessimistic of the, what we could call like Stephen Krashen's input hypothesis, the idea that if you just learn to listen, you get production for free. That seems to be not true. And I think that it makes sense in a theory of skill acquisition, which is that, you know, what you're actually having to do is sort of compile these little units of, of memory and it, they don't go in both directions. And so you need to have both the production and also right. the comprehension ability. But I mean, it's also just the case that there are different sub skills involved in each. So learning to write is going to be somewhat different than learning to speak. Uh, you're going to have to produce the letters, which in a, you know, in something like Mandarin or, or Japanese, if you're using a pen and paper can be quite difficult. Uh, it's probably not as difficult for Spanish. You probably get that you know, fairly easily. But then also there's things in the spoken language that are not going to be present in writing. So the, the idea of directness as well is just this idea that, you know, if you want well-rounded performance, you have to have well-rounded practice. And if you mm -hmm. want to be good at something specifically, you need to practice that specifically. You can't just assume you'll get it as a byproduct of doing something else. So I guess it comes back to why are you learning the language? What do you want to do yeah. with it? Be very specific about that and then sort of right. work backwards to how that practice will actually get you to that thing. Because you brought up Chinese, for example, mm -hmm. writing by hand is, is fun. It's cool. I, I enjoy mm -hmm. it. Um, <laughs> I nerd out on that stuff. But if your only goal is just to communicate, for mm -hmm. example, and be able to have conversations, maybe even be able to have emails or text exchange, you're not going to be writing that by hand. You're going to be typing it in pinyin on a, on a keyboard right. or with your finger. And so maybe for you in that case, then direct practice wouldn't even involve, for example, writing Chinese by hand. Yeah. I mean, it, it also depends. Again, we were talking about your goals. There's probably the case that learning to handwrite the characters would help you read and recognize the characters mm -hmm. more than the reverse because the generative skills harder than the uh, right. understanding skill. But but that asymmetry also can mean that it can take a lot more work to fluently handwrite a character than it does to recognize the character. So if you were trying to read more quickly, it may be the case that you would be able to read more quickly just practicing reading. That was certainly the case for me. I, I would not be able to handwrite any characters just from memory now. I did learn a few dozen when I was in China, but I learned to recognize probably two, 3,000 characters right. uh, at, at my peak. And, and and then later you learn, you know, it's a slightly different skill also reading in context because you use the context to disambiguate mm -hmm. things. So learning to recognize a character on its own can often be very difficult in Chinese just because there's so many similar characters, but you plop it in a sentence and you, you're usually like, unless it's a, unless it's a really difficult sentence, you're usually pretty good. So, so these are all sort of factors that influence how difficult a skill is. It, it seems to be the case that it's easier to transfer from more difficult to less difficult. Right. Uh, but that also affects your learning rate because obviously it takes more time to learn something that's more difficult too. Yeah. And this is where it gets really tricky, I think, because you have optimizing for efficiency in learning. Yeah. And then you have kind of the emotional, biopsychosocial side of things <laughs> yeah. and sustainability and consistency. And right. There's a tension here, I think, where you can come up with the most scientifically proven, like this way is the best way to learn language, yeah. but it sucks and no one's going to do it. They're going to quit after a day, <laughs> right? This is this yeah. is a false dichotomy, but right, just right, for yeah. the sake of argument. Or you have this other way, which is super easy and fun, enter Duolingo. It's a game, yeah. like you said. I think yeah. that's a good way to describe it. It's a game and it's easy, but it's not very effective. And so I think maybe yeah. finding a balance between those two components is one of the key challenges. I think, you know, and this is, there is a risk here. I'm going to, I'm going to preface that before I say this advice, but 
I would say that I am a big believer that we tend to learn things that the environment requires from us. Mm. And this is both a benefit and a curse. The, the benefit of it is that if you can put yourself in a more demanding environment that requires you to perform certain skills at certain levels, you tend to do it. Now, if the demand is too high, you can just break down and like, so the solution would be to give up or the solution would be to try something else. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that this is just sort of, well, the logical extreme would be to throw yourself in the most difficult environment possible. Yeah. Um, but it's also clear, like, I think one of the real challenges of language learning is that if you don't need it to communicate anything, there's a certain artificiality to language learning. It, it mm. you can, you can sustain it through interest alone. I don't want to say that every single thing you learn needs to be motivated in that sense, but I think that is the real benefit of being in an immersive situation is that it gives you a compelling rationale for investing effort in learning. And I think quite frankly, learning is effortful. I think it can be a fun effort, I, I think lots of things that are effortful, we really enjoy. I think the flow state that Cheek Sent Me High kind of coined is very defined by this sort of engagement of your cognitive resources. So I'm not saying that learning has to be painful, but I do think the idea that learning can be effortless, that you don't have to invest any mental energy is profoundly false. And so what you want to do is you want to create situations so that you want to invest the effort, that the effort invested is enjoyable as opposed to how can I make this as low effort as possible. Right. Right, right, right. Which are slightly different questions. So I think the more you can make your make it in a situation where using the language is meaningful to me, I think makes a big difference. Now, finding those opportunities is itself a kind of a there's a there's a tricky process there because you want it to be something where you have the resources to meet the demand, rise up to the mm -hmm. demand and not just uh, break down. But that's one of the reasons I really like starting with this kind of no English rule and having conversations, uh, particularly with a tutor, someone who's going to be very friendly to you, uh, because the other speaker is usually pretty good at adjusting to your level. And, you know, there's people who won't do that, but in general, that's the case. And so once you have a little bit of a foundation, you can often bootstrap quite a bit of speaking ability just from that situation. It's a little bit harder to do that with passive resources. So it's a little bit harder to bootstrap listening comprehension just by watching movies because, you know, especially in a language like Mandarin or, or Japanese, the vocabulary will probably be much above your level in the beginning. And so it might be hard to like cross that chasm, but there's different ways you can handle that too. I, I found some tricks for that as well when I was uh, doing my language learning project. What are some of those while we're on the topic? Well, uh, so if you're watching television, one of the issues is that there is a kind of meaning layer of what you're understanding, which is not really linguistic. It's just kind of what you understand the situation to be. And obviously your understanding of the language informs that meaning layer. And so one way you can, one of the problems with watching something much above your level without subtitles uh, is that you don't understand what's happening. So it's very difficult to acquire new vocabulary because once right. you lose no comprehension of the yeah. situation, it's very difficult to like, well, he said this because it can be the only logical thing that you would say in that context. You don't know what the context is. So mm -hmm. how can you, how can you guess? So uh, one thing that I, uh, I used it a lot for um, the European language, like Spanish, and uh, we did it with uh, Portuguese too, was uh, to find uh, TV shows that we had previously watched in English. So we knew what the context was of the episode right. and then watch it in the language. Because as soon as you don't understand a little five minute segment, you know what happened in the episode. So you get back on track. 
Right. And you learn lots of words because you know what they would have said in, you know, by the meaning context. So that's one way you can kind of graph that on. The other way is if you don't have access to those kind of resources. I know with, um, I found it uh, really hard to find dubbed Mandarin things. So I couldn't do that as much. It's really easy mm. to find in Spanish, but um, Mandarin speak, uh, Chinese speakers uh, generally prefer subtitles. So it's, it's a lot harder. And then subtitles don't work because you don't understand the subtitles at all. Right. But um uh, I did. I did find a, a real like a, a dub of uh, Dragon Ball Z, which I remember watching as a kid. So kids shows you can tend to find dubbed, but it's hard to find anything else. But one other thing you can do is you watch things in two passes. So you watch it with English subtitles, then you watch it uh, without the subtitles, or just with Mandarin subtitles or whatever subtitles for the language you're learning. And that again can be like you can use one to support the other. For reading, graded readers are really good. You know, uh, if you have like learner materials that are graded for level that can be really beneficial. Although sometimes those are not always as much fun. So you have to kind of make some decisions there as well. So a Chinese pod is really good, but you know, you might get bored of just the kind of, this is specifically created for learners. You, you, you wanted right. to engage with something meaningfully, but you know, um, with reading, if you're using like Pleco or something, uh, you can use the document reader so you can tap to translate words. So that's another way that you can do things that are a few levels above what you could do without any support and guidance. So there's various tools you can use to kind of bring something down to a manageable level uh, and still learn what you want to learn or do what you want to do in that context. Have you used any of the new kind of interactive subtitle tools like used to be called Language Learner with Netflix. Now it's called Language Reactor, I think. Yeah, um, I, I haven't. Now, part of that, I think, is just that I... Um, I do remember there was one called maybe Vicky or something like that. I remember there was a tool, something like that. Yeah. And I don't, I think for me, a lot of these tools are kind of new. So when I, it's been several years since I did that trip. And so when I was in that phase, you know, I, I really need, would need access to that. I either didn't have them or I couldn't find them. But now I would say that like, yeah, my, my typical go-to right now is if I, 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 if I watch a TV show in Mandarin or something like that is I usually watch it in Mandarin and then I kind of like go back over over it with the English subs on like some places where it was confusing. So, um, you know, especially for period pieces that can be really hard. Well, the language itself is so different. Exactly. And, uh, you know, with reading, um, again, the Pleco document readers often mm -hmm. something I do, although like, you know, you can, you can also struggle through something that's, that's above your level. There's nothing wrong with that either, but if um, you're interested, I think that's the yeah. key. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think the idea here is just that there can be this you, you can see there's, there's this kind of supply and demand. The demand is sort of what the situation requires of you. And then supply is sort of the knowledge you already have to be able to meet that situation. And so the key is that you want to have some genuine demand, things that were achieving that demand has some instrumental value to you. So it's mm -hmm. not just purely an academic scholastic exercise, but then you also want to have the supply to meet that. So fine tuning those two levels can be tricky, but I think that's an essential process in, in not just learning languages, but learning anything really. To your point earlier about making sure that Delta is not so much that you quit in despair, yeah. but not so small that you're not really getting any benefit from yeah. the activity. And I think it's very important what kinds of processing you're doing too, because I, I feel like you can do a lot of activities that are sort of language themed, but they're mm -hmm. probably not forcing you to process the language at all. So, you know, if you were watching a, a show with English subtitles and it was another language, if you were quite a fluent speaker, you would probably pick up stuff from the language without really putting in much effort. But what's actually happening is you're investing all your cognitive resources into reading the text, and that interferes with doing the listening right. part. And because one's much easier than the other, right. it's going to be very difficult for you to spontaneously pick up words, again, only if your language level was already fairly high so that you're able to do that relatively easily. So if you have zero language learning ability, 
watching a bunch of movies with English subtitles probably has very little benefit. Maybe it's just kind of nice culturally to like, Mm -hmm. you know, immerse yourself. So I don't want to say you should never do it, but just for a pure learning activity, it may not be as beneficial. So, I mean, again, it's a sort of fine tuning that I think you might want to do that the first pass. You understand what's happening and then you watch it again and you can kind of use what you know is happening to try to make sense of it. But, but there's this real, as I said, this sort of supply and demand dialogue that happens with learning that then it kind of goes back and forth. Yeah. And being honest with yourself, I think about what you actually are doing back to the directness principle. I think it's really easy to delude yourself into thinking, oh, I'm practicing the language. Right. No, you're to your point. (laughs) I'm reading English. I'm not really actually practicing this language. But if that is a temporary step, to increase comprehension so that you can then get more out of it when you turn off the English subtitles. Cool. And I know you talk about immersion uh, in, in language learning, and that's something I'm obviously a big fan of. And one of the things that I found so beneficial about that is that the kind of having an immersive project, it doesn't have to be totalizing the way that we, you know, the trip that my friend and I did where like we would land off the plane, no English, except for in an emergency or something is pretty extreme. But even if you just had something like, okay, I have like a, you know, regular conversation group that I'm going to, or I have to speak anything that creates a demand in your life. It also means that now when you're studying that studying is now motivated in some ways so that it's sort of like, okay, I need to learn something so I can participate. Um, so I, I tend to think that the, there is a sort of a meeting of, of ideas there. I don't think that like just like going to another country doesn't automatically make you learn the language because there's w- many ways to avoid learning the language, like to yeah. deal with the demand by not learning. Um, uh, and I think that is particularly true when the situation is is particularly difficult. If you don't understand anything, you rely on non-linguistic things to try to understand the situation or, you know, you're pointing and this kind of thing. That's right. not necessarily practicing either. But I think if you're in broadly a situation where it's like, okay, I have to do it this way, then, you, then when you're at home, home, all your studying, all your flashcards are all like super relevant. So when we did this trip, I mean, it was like consuming, you know, nutrients. You're like, I need this information so that I can go out there and live. Like if I don't do this, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, stuck at home alone and yeah. stuff. The stakes and so, were high you know, and immediate. <laughs> yeah. So it, it really imbued everything, I think, with, um, with a greater, greater significance. Quickly on the note of going abroad and, and yeah. learning abroad, I, I, I think this is a really interesting and an often controversial part of language mm-hmm. learning because people just assume like you said if i go abroad i'll just pick it up <laughs> and you and i both i'm sure know many uh, yeah, people no, no, no. i mean i'm sure you've met some and probably tried to avoid them when you were in your year of no english uh, but yeah they there's more people that don't speak the target language in those countries than do i, I found in my experience um overwhelmingly yeah yeah so it's not automatic and by the same token i think there are definitely many ways you can quote unquote immerse yourself while you're still home yeah. in some ways it's never going to yeah. be as good obviously and probably the demand as you put it yeah. won't be as strong as having to order food or have a conversation i want to counter that as well because i think the the demand is something you kind of create for yourself and so i think that yeah there's a totalizing aspect to being in a country and doing what we did where we had the no english rule where it's like literally every communication you do verbally in that country uh, should at least be in that language, you know, creates a huge breadth for, for language. So it's not just the conversation you would have with one person, which can be kind of this restricted sort of uh, social set. So it does create more demand. It also makes it more stressful. So it has a double-edged sword there. But I think at home, like you can use that as same property. So we, we might get into this, but uh, this was maybe two years ago. Uh, this was the beginning of like the COVID lockdown. My wife and I, we just had a son 
Uh, and we were like, well, you know, oh, thank you. And we were like, you know what? I'd like to, I'd like to learn a little um, Macedonian. And so uh, we just did this. Now I did have a little bit of prior practice. We had gone to Macedonia before and I'd kind of done a, like a handful of flashcards and stuff, but not, mm-hmm. not really. And um, so this was sort of like a, an opportunity and I, you know, if you can allocate some time to it, I think it, it's, it's, it's nice because then when you're learning things, you just, you're able to go through this loop of learning something, applying it in a real situation, getting feedback so frequently. Whereas, you know, if you, if you just do the flashcards, for instance, you may not even realize that you're learning a word wrong for like a mm-hmm. month and you're like, Oh no, no, it's not this, it's this, or that word only means that in this very narrow context and you're right. learning it wrong and stuff. And so I think this kind of, uh, directness, uh, you know, you're getting that real feedback from the environment is often an important corrective on, on what you're doing. And so there's lots of ways you can do that. But I think the, the challenge is to select those things for yourself, because I think people generally avoid picking environments that, that challenge them in that way. And so point in case, if you go to another country, overwhelmingly, people don't learn the language when they get there, or they learn it very slowly. And it's amazing the lengths that people go and the amount of you could say deprivations they endure by avoiding the language. Like I've met people in Korea and in China who've been there for decades that, you know, could barely order food in a restaurant. And, you know, they are very kind of like, oh yeah, I'm not good at it and this kind of thing. And and the profound feeling I have is not like, oh, that person's so lazy, but just like, think of what this person has to endure living in this country that has like, well, especially in parts of China that are not like Beijing or Shanghai, you know, a majority of non-English speakers, you're really isolated from the entire culture and world. And so I think that, uh, you know, again, just being in an environment that it would be good to know the language is not enough. You you really need to be in a situation where you're required to actually use it. And so that's, again, that fine tuning, because if the demand is too, too high, or you don't think you can do it, then you you find some way around it. So you're like, well, I'm going to do this instead of learning it because mm-hmm. learning it's going to be too hard. And I mean, again, if you have the pure interest uh, in a language, you can go quite far from a purely scholastic approach. I don't want to suggest that like, you know, people who learn languages in schools are, are you know, doing it the wrong way. I think... Uh, There is a tendency in the school environment to not, again, really do the practice you need because you need to have like, I don't know, probably 10 hours of practice for every like lesson that's done. I can't tell you how many times you you go to a language class and the teacher's like, oh, well, I taught you that like three weeks ago. Why don't you remember? Well, yeah, because you have to say it like 15, 20, 30 times before you remember. Like, that's just what it is. right? Right. And so if you're not regularly practicing, it's not there. But that being said, you know, I've met lots of people who they are in a situation where let's say they, they need to learn English for their career, for their job. Um, and, and, you know, it's not an immediate need, but they like studied in school and they learn it quite well. And so it's, Mm. it's not to say that you, you can't, um, like you need to be in this immersive situation to learn it, or you need to have some conversation partner to learn it. I think it's more just, you need to have something that motivates you to go through the, um, the different learning activities, whether that's a conversation situation, whether that's, you know, practicing in your book, memorizing flashcards, Mm. whatever it is. Yeah. more and more, I believe that anything can work. There, you know, there are things that are <laughs> yeah. probably better than others in terms of efficiency and enjoyability. But if you're motivated, the the method and the material becomes, I think, far less important. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a minute ago, like that teacher saying, "I taught you this," and in, in air quotes. <laughs> That's something I definitely in linguistics I've learned a lot about. There's a huge difference between quote learning and quote acquisition. 
Yeah. These are very, very different things. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you've got the linguistics background, but as I understand it, the, the distinction that linguists make between acquisition and learning is that uh, acquisition is assumed to be somewhat of an implicit process that like mm-hmm. it is through through bulk exposure to the language, you sort of pick up patterns that you're not consciously aware of as, whereas learning is a more cognitive process. Um, conscious. I, yeah. More conscious and explicit. Uh, I don't know the, I don't know the status of this exactly. Cause it seems like there's probably some, some implicit aspects, certainly for language learning, but I feel like from the research that I've done and work I've done reading about skill acquisition in other areas that I tend to view that it's it's more learning than acquisition than we think. Like I tend to be mm. more of the view that when we're acquiring things, it's probably more explicit than we realize that we learn we learn. Now that doesn't mean you can't learn something from a from a context that it has to be uh, directly instructed. I think um, there's lots of things you learn, but it also seems to me to be the case that um, like, particularly in production, uh, like producing speech or writing or something like that, it seems to me to be hard to like use a complicated grammar pattern that you haven't actually, you know, been told about or done some practice with. Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. I'm very rarely just spontaneously using a grammar pattern. Vocabulary is probably a lot easier, but vocabulary is fairly easy to just infer from the situation because it's not, it doesn't have a lot of internal complexity. Um, So little things like, you know, little grammatical particles and stuff in in Mandarin, you know, -hmm. you can probably just use it just from, okay, there were sentences like this, but uh, like word order, for instance, Mm -hmm. is something that's like, it's probably easier for someone to tell you what the word order is. And then you just, you kind of keep that in mind when you're practicing. And at some point you don't think about it. It's just, well, that sentence sounds wrong and the sentence sounds right. So I think that's an interesting kind of debate. I don't know enough of the literature to know uh, how, how true that position is, but it, it is interesting to think about. And I think that it does probably represent a difference between adult and uh, sure. child language learning is that it's probably at least in that dimension, more learning than acquisition um, right. for, for adults. And adults have the ability to more consciously right. think yeah. about it. And, and so that can be a huge it, advantage, a huge advantage. And that, that's often one of the things I talk about, even, even if from a purely biological evolutionary mm-hmm. point of view, if, if learning in a natural, intuitive, tacit way in the long run, maybe leads you to a higher level of fluency. Why waste this giant computer we have at our disposal that we can throw at things, especially like to your point, vocabulary or deciphering these complex grammar rules. One of the distinctions I've read a lot about is between declarative and procedural memory. Yeah. And this kind of thing lines with this, whereas mm-hmm. vocabulary, you know, it's declarative. You can, it's knowing what the case is and then procedural yeah. being how something works. Um, you know, it's kind of like riding a bike versus, um, knowing the parts of a bike, like one's declared, yeah. one's procedural. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about how, uh, like, sort of formally worked out models of, of language learning to, to say with any certainty, but um, like, I've just been very recently reading stuff about uh, like different kind of cognitive models for, for thinking about this. And I think it's probably the case that, uh, that there's a considerable skilled component to like a considerable procedural component to speaking a language is, mm-hmm. which, which is, um, related to, you know, when I want to say this kind of sentence, I have to do it in this way. Um, and I think that a lot of that is a lot of that comes from just like memory that you just Mm -hmm. sort of, you remember fragments of the language that you're sort of just like drawing up and you're saying it in one go, as opposed to, um, you know, doing this sort of effortful calculation procedure with each sentence you say, it's often just like, you're using little snippets of like 
phrasing and stuff that you've 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 you sort of just memorized. And so I don't know. I think um, I think there's a lot of different processes there. I think where it kind of impacts um, this sort of directness idea we were talking about is that it seems to me whether it's declarative or whether it's a procedural, what exact system there does. It's never just one either. I mean, it's always going to be true. both too, to an extent. But it seems yeah. like there's definite, um, there's definite specificity so that like producing a language requires like several different skills to come together to yeah. do it. And that there's a different set of skills, maybe with some overlap with understanding and, you know, one probably helps the other, but I Mm -hmm. think that it's probably the case that if you, if you don't do both, you'd be surprised at uh, how much one doesn't transfer the other. Like if you could do it in some controlled experiment where you only practiced listening to something, I think it would be surprising how bad you are at producing speech, like from, from your head. Well, we have the experiment and it's how people learn English in Japan. Thousands and thousands of people spend years and years and years studying and studying and memorizing and reading, but not speaking. And then when it comes time to try to produce the language verbally, it's so it's, they haven't practiced it at all, or at least very, very little. And it's really heartbreaking because they've put in so much time and effort and back to the demand thing, the demands there, their yeah. careers depend on it, but they just haven't done that direct practice. Like you talk, about. you know, and I think, I think that's an interesting case. Cause I feel like, uh, it's clearly the case. So, you know, it might, in my sort of trying to defend the people who are very like input focused, I think it's clearly the case that if you were a fluent comprehender of the language, you would then later learn to speak faster than if you were at zero clearly. I, so mm-hmm. I, I do think there would be some, some transfer there. I think it's just that like in the immediate situation, I don't like, I think that you just, you'd have to practice this extra thing on top. And, um, and so, you know, I remember going to, uh, Beijing and, uh, this was like a real funny story. Cause I have a, a book that's, uh, translated and published there. And I was hanging out with the publisher and it was one of those things that like, I'd always written to them in English, mm-hmm. like, cause it would be about accounting stuff. And, and they started sure. contacting me before I even learned Chinese. So it was always this kind of like, well, we just continue the conversation in English and, you know, again, it's a lot of like technical stuff, royalty reports, this kind of thing. It's a lot of the thing that I did not have the specific vocabulary to, to do it in Mandarin. And so I was a little bit like, well, I'm going to, I'm in China now. So maybe I should try to like t- speak to people in Mandarin. And it was like a switch. Like as soon as I started talking to them, they were like, oh, thank God, we don't have to speak in English. And then no one spoke to me in English the entire time I was there. But what was interesting is that I would be having conversations with people and there would be specific words. I think one of them was uh, localization like to localize a a product. And I didn't know what it was. And so I said it in English, localization. And one of the people I'm speaking to in Chinese, like immediately knew, oh, it's this in Chinese. And uh, when that occurred, it just, it just occurred to me how much English knowledge this person has, and they feel like just terrified of actually speaking it. So I think there's probably a significant affective component to that as well. I don't think sure. it's merely that, that that they've learned English in such a bad way that they'd be unable to speak it. I think what it is, is that you've spent years studying something, you feel like you should be good at it, but you're mm. not. And then that's like very dispiriting <laughs> yeah. when you're doing it. Whereas, you know, for me going to another country where I have very minimal knowledge and you're speaking and you're speaking it badly, part of it is the background assumption of like, well, yeah, I've only been here for a couple of weeks. Of course, I'm speaking it badly. Like there's not a self-consciousness about it. It's like, well, yeah, of course I sound like an idiot. I've been here for three weeks. I'm just doing my best. And being North American, I think we have, there's no expectation that we're going to speak the local language for the most part. True. Yeah. That's another big thing too. I think that's another big factor in, uh, in how you approach things. So I do think there's different skills involved in doing different things. And so 
spending you, you, like again you want to be well rounded you got to do all of them but if you are have a particular goal i'm going to travel in this country then you know there's going to be a lot of specific things you might want to prioritize there which will maybe be different if you had different goals you have a great quote that i'm going to share here in a moment about automaticity and then i want to hear your feedback okay. so you said I'm convinced that much of the learning of a language isn't just acquiring new vocabulary and grammatical patterns. Instead, it's training words and phrases you already know until they reach automaticity, which is a hard word to say, by the way. (laughs) The failure of automaticity is why many people can spend months or years studying a language and still feel frustratingly unable to speak it. What are your best tips for then building automaticity? We'll use it a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. I think the automaticity building part of it is the is the real grind mm-hmm. of learning anything. And I think that's one of the reasons it's hard to do in a scholastic context because it's a grind, because it's something that like, you know, to memorize your times tables. I don't know if you remember memorizing your timetables when you were a kid, yeah. but like. I remember that was a whole like months of that of just like spewing out facts again and again and again. And so uh, there's different ways you can approach it. I mean, you can get automaticity through different types of exercises, but I think where you get true automaticity is in the full performance of a skill. So I think it's probably the case that if you are fluent in flashcards, it will not necessarily translate to fluency in speaking. And so that's one of the things that I think like flashcards can be really great for giving you the, the basic building blocks of the language to use it. But I think you really want it at a level where like, if it's a flashcard that you're learning to be able to say it, as opposed to recognize it, then you need to be producing it in speech. And so that's one of the reasons why I think having genuine conversations is so important for speaking situations, because there's really no other way that you're going to get the hundreds of repetitions of basic phrases. That's not going to be a complete grind. But if I'm having a conversation with you and it's about something I enjoy, then I kind of get that as a byproduct. Now, I mean, I don't think that the conversation situation alone is is usually sufficient to to introduce a lot of new vocabulary, grammar patterns. So I think there's a benefit to study. Um, I want to say that clearly, because I think there's a tendency to go to the opposite approach that like, just because conversation practice is essential that like throw your grammar book in the garbage and like those flashcards are for suckers. And the the reason why that's important is that it's difficult to learn a new word when you're already juggling lots of other things in the situation. So I I don't know if this has happened to you, but this happened to me many times when I was learning Mandarin, I would learn, I would be in some situation. I would say, what's that? The person would say a word and it's like in one ear and out the other. Like I cannot remember it. Now, if that was in my little flashcard deck and I got a chance to like do it four or five times in a row and then it's spaced out and like, I will remember it. I will learn it. And so there's different trade-offs there. I think that in the scholastic learning type situation, it's better at getting that first stage of learning where you need to like introduce a new pattern, a new concept, a new idea. And I think uh, that can be very beneficial. But in terms of getting to fluency, it's use. You have to use it a lot. Right. And I think there's probably uh, some truth to this in a lesser extent in the other direction. I think there's probably a fluent listening skill. It's definitely a fluent reading skill, but uh, they're somewhat different, I think, just because the, the medium is a little different. So like for reading, for instance, uh, just because you can go at it at a variable speed, it's probably a little different than listening. And, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, there's different aspects of that. So I, I don't want to say that as confidently, but definitely for producing speech or producing writing, Uh, You have to do it a lot. And so that's, again, why this demand model, like if you can find some situation where you need to use it regularly, even if it's somewhat contrived, as long as it's enjoyable for you, then then you're going to get that practice. So for speaking, we already talked about 
working with tutors is a great way to do that. Yeah. What about for writing? I mean, you could use a, you could use a tutor for writing too. I know, um, italki has like a writing correction feature. Now, admittedly, I have writing is my most deficient area of language mm. learning. I spent the least amount of time on it. Um, in, in all the languages, I think, I think I would be probably the worst person to give advice on like how to become an excellent writer in another language. I think that in most languages, the writing would be similar to speech. I think, I think the main difference between uh, like, I would say literary parts of language learning compared to the um, oral parts of language learning is that uh, literary speech tends to be more complicated and more refined. And so you can easily sound okay in a conversational level. And then you transcribe what you're saying and you sound like an idiot in writing. And that's true in English too. That's right. And I think that's true of people who don't write regularly in English. When they write emails, they sound like idiots because, you know, sorry, I'm being too harsh here, but it's just because if you actually transcribe speech, or what you're thinking, it doesn't have a literary organization. No. You don't use words like however and therefore, and you don't use proper sentences. Yep. And you don't and, use you complete know, sentences. You know. It's little fragments. I don't know if you're if you've ever yeah. read the uh the transcription they released from Richard Nixon after oh, the Watergate okay. yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Right. That was the first time that I think a lot of Americans <laughs> had read actual speech in writing and they were like, yeah. this, this doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. sounds like a lunatic. Maybe exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I, again, going back to this directness idea, there's probably different skills. So I, I don't have a lot of personal experience. I did, did very little writing training, which makes me kind of a bad expert to talk about here. But if I were going to go and spend more time doing it, um, well, first of all, I'd, I would identify what kind of writing I want to do. So if I'm mm -hmm. trying to write like business correspondence, it's going to be a little bit different than like short stories or something. Uh, there's going to be a lot of overlap. So I don't want to say they're completely different, but uh, I think I think that's one of the things I would do. So yeah, pen pals, you could uh, find a tutor. You know, one of the big things I believe about language learning, and this is again, this automaticity is that you probably need about like 10 times as much practice as you need tutoring. And so you kind of want to get that corrective feedback. It's, it's concentrated more at the early stage. And then after that, you need to have just a lot of bulk practice. So I think you could even be you know, just participating in like forums or like, like it doesn't have to be a sit setting where someone is going to like pick out all your mistakes and correct them exactly. Because I do think that that, that is beneficial. You want to do some of that, but I think that setting that as the standard that like every single error I need to make needs to be corrected makes it often a lot harder to get enough practice too. You know, uh, I, when we were traveling on the trip, Pat and I mostly spoke to each other, which is, you know, from uh, a lot of language learning teachers would like shudder at that because they're like, well, but you're going to be making errors and they're going to be right. fossilizing and like, you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff. There's some truth to that if you weren't doing any other practice. But right. the point being is that if you had one conversation with someone and you learned a pattern that you're like pretty sure is correct and then you used it like, 10, 15 times. So I think there's a danger in going a long time without corrective feedback, without having your mistakes pointed out. And I think it's always important to be cognizant that you might be making mistakes and have that willingness to be like, I'm willing to adjust. So if I'm speaking a language and people are saying I'm not pronouncing it right, I don't just say, ah, whatever. 
you know? Yeah. I do, I do listen to that. And I'm like, I do try to make efforts there. But at the same time, again, going to this automaticity idea, I think that the stuff that you're reasonably confident you're saying correctly, you do want to have quite a bit of repetition. And if there is some case that you like, you learn something wrong and you're using it wrong for a while, you will eventually get that pointed out to you. So I tend to think yeah. this idea that, oh, it's impossible to fix your mistake after. Yeah, maybe if you've been doing it wrong for like years, but if you've been doing mm-hmm. it wrong for like a week or two, uh, I have done that in each language I've been to where sure. I, we will learn it the wrong way. We will say it the wrong way to each other. And then the native speaker are like, oh, I don't want you talking about it. And then you're like, oh, yep. this, it means this. And they're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and so, and then you <laughs> fix it, right? So it, right. It, it is it is the case that I think you can get a lot of practice without having that tutor who's going to fix everything uh, immediately. Yeah, I think one area that shows up a lot is when you're focused too much on reading and not often listening, then you think something's pronounced a certain way. And then because reading's so easy, you get all those reps piled up real yeah. quick, thinking it's pronounced a certain way. And then when you go to say it, you realize like, I mean, this happens even native languages, right? I said hyperbole oh. until I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> for example, oh, I could, I could make a list of words yeah. that I, I, you know, you know where you learn this. Um, so when I had to do the audiobook for right. ultra learning, it was like, oh man, actually, and it wasn't usually words. So I'm not, I'm not that kind of like pretentious idiot who, who writes words that I don't actually know how to pronounce, but it would be like a lot of names of people mm-hmm. where I'm like, I actually don't know how to say this person's name. And then it would be me and like the recording engineer, like YouTubing, <laughs> you know, I think my favorite was there was this woman who uh, I'm, I'm blanking. Now. I, I want to say she was maybe Latvian. I think it was Baltic, but her last name, which, and again, she's not a famous person. So I can't just mm-hmm. like, you know, Google some news person talking about her. And I think it was spelled a J A U N Z E I K-A-R-E. And it was like, how do you pronounce that? And we were just guessing at it. And now I'm probably going to say it wrong because I don't speak Latvian or Estonian or whatever one it was, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Jekare was the correct pronunciation or fairly close to that. And it was like, I would never have guessed that in a no. million years. And so it's one of those things that, yeah, like again, directness, you're, you're getting right. quite specific information when you're doing things, you're practicing quite specific skills. And so if you wanted to be able to say Jekare, it helps to have heard Jekare. It helps yep. to have been in a situation where you can actually say it, just reading it doesn't necessarily give you that pronunciation yep. information. And that's particularly true for a language like Mandarin, yeah. where, you know, I will understand the meaning of a sentence and then I will be mistaken at how it is said just because I know what this word means, but I think it's pronounced like this, but it's actually pronounced like something else, you know, uh, with characters and stuff. So that that can be a real big problem. You might know like the tone of an individual character, right? But then in combination, the tone rules are so complex and all over the place. Mm -hmm. And native speech does not actually match the rules necessarily either. It's a whole other thing, depending on dialect, but that's a whole other conversation. So tell me more about this year of no English. What was a day to day, day in the life of, of Scott during this time? What was that like? And then what surprised you? Yeah, well, I'll reflect on this from like what we thought at the time to what I think now, maybe like eight years later. So mm-hmm. I feel like, first of all, there's a certain arrogance going into this kind of project that, uh, you know, there's a certain cockiness of it, but that really wasn't our attitude. And I think it's really hard to impress upon people that, cause I think the idea of like, oh, well, we're just like so smart. We're going to just like do this. <laughs> But it wasn't like that at all. It was just, this sounds like it's cool. I wonder if it would work. That mm-hmm. was all. Like we were very much like, there's a 50% chance we're going to fall flat on our ass when we do this and this is going <laughs> to totally fail. Yeah. So it was really a coincidence that it happened to work. Like I don't, I, I had learned some French and I had done this kind of, I'm only going to speak French when 
program here. And I thought, well, yeah. this seemed to work for French, but I already learned some French. So it wasn't like from zero or anything. And I was thinking, you know what? This seems to be an important factor because one of the things that I found was that if you go to a country and you don't speak the language and you don't use this rule that I'm talking about, it's very easy to get this little English bubble around yourself and you don't actually get yeah. as much practice opportunities as you thought. So the, the theory was we'll solve the social problem of having lots of practice opportunities and then just see how good we get. Like that was mm. it. I, I am not Benny Lewis. I was not like, <laughs> we're going to be fluent after three months. That was not my claim or, or anything yeah. like that. It was just, let's just see how good we get. Sure. And I, it's very lucky we picked Spanish first because not to pat myself on the back too much for my Spanish, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's mediocre. It's not like it's perfect. But the things we were able to do in Spanish after three months were very impressive to us. We were not thinking we would be able to do that after three mm -hmm. months. We, even after a month, we have friends we're doing like we're doing all the things we would normally do in regular life in Spanish that was very surprising to us I'm thinking about like I was dating a Spanish girl my mm -hmm. friend that he was studying architecture at the time and he even went on a trip this was uh, like near the end of it he went on a trip to Switzerland to meet with the famous architect Santiago Calatrava and he had a whole conversation with this like idol of his in Spanish like he didn't they didn't speak in English at wow. all again we did not have fluent professorial quality Spanish but in terms of could you go to a country country and interact with people who don't speak English and have profitable, interesting social encounters. And that was unequivocally yes. And so that experience in Spain, where it was sort of like, oh, wow, we went much further than we thought we would, was a real confidence booster mm -hmm. and a real shot in the arm for the rest of the trip. Now, going to Asia was harder. China was interesting because I was super interested in learning Chinese, that not so much. And mm -hmm. so right there, a major, you know, major difference. He found it much more of a struggle. He broke the no English rule way more in China than we had before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't blame him because it's just that kind of supply demand model we were talking about. It was yep. just a larger gap. And right. so I remember that coming back home after like a day out doing something. And he was just super frustrated. He's like, and I was taught, this is how you say this. And then I go there and they don't understand me. This is, you know, bullshit and this kind of thing. And it's because there's so much difference between it that you'll learn a sentence, but re not realize where it applies or not realize the context, or it's just a weird sentence to say. And so people, you know, you have a bad accent and they're trying to guess at what you might yeah. be saying. Like, what? I remember going to a restaurant with him and he's whispering to me in English because his, you know, Chinese is not uh, at that level. And he's like, can you, can you ask them to put chicken in it? And I'm like, you're getting me to order off menu items in this like local <laughs> Chinese restaurant? Just pick a number, man. Yeah. Like, I, like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to like explaining to this guy. And instead of the dishes that you actually have available, can you add chicken to this, right. you know, chow mein dish or something? So there, there's definitely, you know, were more elements of difficulty, but that being said, from the kind of perspective we had going into it, like it was an adventure. It was fun. And we had a lot, mm -hmm. had a good time. And I think for people who are interested in learning Chinese, I did study very hard when I was in China. So it was not like the leisurely, you know, having fun going to parties and sitting on the beach that we did in mm -hmm. Spain and Brazil. <laughs> but after like near the end of China, China, I sat the HSK four and I passed it. So that if you're learning Chinese, you can have some sense of yeah. how good my Chinese was after the three months stay. Korea was the reverse. Uh, that was really interested in learning it. I was interested, but kind of also burnt out from all the studying I did sure. the last three countries. So I got to an okay level, but we definitely had more cracks in the no English rule. And it was definitely the grindy kind of... Mm. It's also the end of a year of intensive yeah. learning. So you're kind of probably just burnt out, it, period, right? It's, it's one of those things that when you describe what we were doing, the impression a lot of people have is like, oh, you'd burn out after like three weeks. There's no way you could do it. So the fact that we were able to do nine months in three different countries before yeah. it was like, okay, now we're exhausted. <laughs> I think itself uh, says something about the approach.
Now, that being said, from this perspective, looking back on it now, what can I say? Well, first of all, almost no one follows our advice to do this. So there's clearly an aversion to doing it. Like almost no one does this. I've had a few people who've said, yeah, I've done that. But almost everyone is like, oh, I want to go there. What's your tips for learning a language? And then I'm like, okay, try this no English rule. And then it's just like crickets, right? So so I know this advice is unpopular. I think it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. So I think Mm -hmm. that's sort of my like, I don't know whether that's a selling point, but that's sort of what I would say about it. But there's a few things you can do to make it a lot easier. The first is obviously to do more prep before you go somewhere. So with Spanish, we felt like it was hard in the first couple of weeks, but doable with about 50 hours. Uh, That was Pimsleur plus a little bit of other kind of random stuff we did. With Chinese, I did 100 hours, although a lot of that was low quality flashcards that I was just kind of doing casually. So it was 100 hours, but not the best 100 hours. So I think if you did 100 to 200 hours in an Asian language before you get there, you could do what we did. It would still be effortful, but you could do what we did. And so I think that's a good barometer for thinking about it. I think for most people, if you did like a year or two in university of that class, and then you go live there for a year, I would make a commitment to doing the knowing English rule from day one, just because it's the social bubble that you create around yourself that's yeah. so important. So if you do it three months later, you already got all the English speaking friends, you're done. You, you right. like It's really hard to break out it of it is. after that. So I think uh, in some ways, this sociological effect of the bubble means that you probably want to do more study at home. It's uh, the kind of uh, go immerse yourself from day one. Okay, yeah, but be prepared to spend the first two weeks grinding out studying in your room a right. lot Alone. if you have zero experience. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's important. And I think if you're going to do immersion at home, like I did with, with my wife, again, I had had some basic experience. I had done some flashcards. We had done a little bit before. So I wasn't from zero, but I was, I would say pre-conversational. Like I was not mm-hmm. at a level where I was like comfortable having conversations. So I think in a more limited setting where you're doing it with one person in one setting where it's not encompassing your whole life and you're already used to speaking to this person in your native language. So the whole sociological bubble thing doesn't apply then I think you can do it a lot earlier in a more restricted setting. So you can just be like, well, I'm going to do this an hour a week or something like that. that. That's fine. I think it's just for travel purposes. If you're making a lot of new friends, if you're meeting a lot of new people, it's really helpful to do it in the language because then there's this expectation that you're going to speak in that language from the beginning. And that expectation, I think it's, it's much more important than the level you speak at. That You can be quite fluent and there's still an expectation for you to speak in uh, English and you can have quite a low level and have an expectation for you to speech in the other language. So they, they are dissociated. They're not related mm-hmm. to your level. And that's something I've noticed being back here in Canada is that it's much harder for me to use my Mandarin in like kind of random encounters because it's weird here. But when right. I'm in China, it's super normal. And so it, again, it has nothing to do with the quality of my Chinese. It has everything to do with this expectation from this other person of what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> 100%. So you said about 100 hours of, of dedicated effort for one of these Asian languages, which... For many maybe reasons, 200, yeah. or two hundred yeah. is ideal, yeah. maybe to do before you you go abroad. What should those hundred hours? to 200 hours be full of? Yeah. I mean, this is a real contentious point. I have talked to a lot of people who are like polyglots. Everyone has their own thing that they sure. like to do. So take this with a grain of salt. This is not, this is not the law. This is just what has worked for me. Uh, I like Pimsleur to start mm-hmm. and I like Pimsleur because of the few beginner resources, it actually forces you to produce 
fluent speech. Right. So it will teach you very few sentences. And a lot of those sentences will be stilted and overly yep. formal, but you will be able to say them, which is a lot more than I can say for virtually any other beginner resource. Yep. Uh, if you can take a class, take a class because classes are good and you teachers can give you resources and point things out to you as well. So I haven't done a lot of actual formal classes, so I'm not in the best position to judge, but you know, if your local community college has a Spanish class, yeah, go there. They'll give you some resources. You can actually talk to some people. It's probably good. Italki is pretty good. I think Italki is good if you are going to have actual conversations with people. If you get into this dynamic where you're just doing textbook exercises yeah. with the teacher watching you, don't pay for that. Do that at home. Yeah. You know, like there's no point to that. A lot of tutors online, that's what they want to do and so they Cuz it's easy oh, for them. This, this yeah. chit chat, this is just wasting time. Right. Let's get down to doing the grammar. Right. Like, like I can't do that without yeah. paying you $15 an hour. Like it's, it's ridiculous. So that's something that I think is one of the challenges is, you know, language teachers have a specific preference for how they like to teach the language. And mm-hmm. so I tend to like, okay, let me practice it with you. What I've been learning on the side. And a lot of tutors are much more like, no, 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 let's go through the workbook. Yep. <laughs> so I think that uh, tutoring can be good. I think that, that that's very helpful. Uh, I like to do flat flashcards. This is something that I think I've been shifting to more recently because it's taken me a while to figure out what kind of flashcards I should do. Yeah, I was going to ask and, about that. Like, what do your flashcards look like? Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's problems with flashcards. It's very hard to find good flashcard decks uh, on Anki. I don't like, yeah. I really don't like a lot of like pre-made flashcard decks. They're bad for lots of psychological reasons. Making a flashcard deck is a lot of work. So there's that, that yeah. as well. Um, the other issue is that uh, flashcards tend not to have audio when yeah. you don't have audio and you're not speaking it regularly. There's a translation issue there because you're not a fluent reader. You misread the words mm-hmm. that may makes it harder to apply in the speaking situation. So I think there's a real risk of spending a lot of time doing flashcards before moving to the real speaking situation. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I think it's paramount that you memorize, I would say the thousand sort of most common slash useful words to you. And probably you want to memorize in, in all their variations, a few dozen sentence patterns. It's different, which sentence patterns matter. They, they matter differently for different languages. Mandarin, for instance, doesn't have tenses. So you don't have the whole mm-hmm. conjugation thing you have in Spanish. For a romance language, of which I've now done a couple of times, it's like, well, you need to memorize this pattern for all the different subject conjugations. Right. You need to probably learn it in present and simple past and maybe conditional sentences that you might use for you know polite uh, speech and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you just practice those repetitively. So I think that would give you a right foundation. Now, creating that deck can be a little tricky. I I like to do it when you have some interaction with a tutor because then you get to test. Or it doesn't have to be a tutor. It could just be another speaker. One of my favorite examples was um, when I was learning Macedonian with my wife. uh, You know, it uses Cyrillic. And so the B's in English, like a capital B is actually a the sound in Cyrillic languages. And this is is a whole sort of Macedonian thing. But there was a, a big statue made which was like warrior on a horseback. There's a whole controversy about this thing. And for some reason, I put this in my deck just because it came up in there. And it's a vuina cogne. And that's like warrior on horseback. But I thought it was bonina cogne. <laughs> that was how I was saying it. And, and so I'm like, bonina cogne. And she's like, what are you saying? Like, what is this? And it's because I'm not a fluent reader. I see the B. I, I don't suppress the urge to record that as a V. And I read it in my head as bonina cogne. But it's voina cogne. Like it's a V sound, right? Yeah. And so that was an example of a word that because I, I didn't have the pronunciation 
I was getting it wrong. And so I corrected that, right? Because I, I used it in a conversation and then it's like, what? And then, <laughs> no, 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 it's not that, it's this. And sometimes it can be subtle things too. You know, with Mandarin, I think that's like huge. Like tones are so subtle and like, yeah. so you really do need to, to speak it. And so I think that flashcards are very good, but you probably want that feedback loop if you're mm-hmm. making your own deck. But I mean, yeah, you can have about a thousand words that you can sort of figure out that are like sort of basic stuff that you would want to say. So basic nouns, basic places, basic things like this, you can kind of make, and then you can do those flashcards. And then usually I'm just sort of adding to the deck as I go. So when we're immersing ourselves, if I'm having a Skype tutoring session, for instance, I'll ask them to write down the words Mm -hmm. as they're saying them. And then that becomes, okay, this is a new list of words to put in the flashcards. And uh, because they came up in actual speech, so chances are I'll want to use them again. And sometimes I will learn words that I haven't learned before just from a vocabulary list. So you can extract that from textbooks or learner resources or things like this. Again, with the difficulty that especially with uh, non-Latin alphabets uh, that have non-obvious pronunciation, you want to be careful. You want to make sure you're saying them properly. So you probably need to use them a couple times. These are sort of the resources I suggest. I think I was pretty hard on Duolingo before. I think using Duolingo just because it's so easy you could probably do it. You know, it is like one of the few things you can do like two seconds of the day. Yeah. But I think just as long as in the back of your head, you keep in mind, you know what? No, this is this yep. is only going to get me so far. And this is a game. This is a game that can give me like some very basic patterns that maybe I can apply in a speaking situation. I think the difference is that a lot of other learner resources, you're unlikely to get stuck on them. Like, I don't know that many people get like stuck on Pimsleur because it's, you know, at some point you don't want to do Pimsleur anymore. Right. But like, you really can just do Duolingo as a game for eight months. So yeah. I think that can be the, the issue there. And so that's what I'd recommend for, for Mandarin in particular. I think Chinese pod is really good for listening. They've got a mm-hmm. lot of learner resources there. I really liked um, like they can, you know, give you their own flashcards and mm-hmm. things like that. I think these are also good ways to get started uh, with learning the language. So don't sweat it too, too much. I think anything you learn is going to be better than nothing, but definitely if you're going to head into an immersive situation, you want to have fluent, some basic core of the language. Pimsleur is good for that as well as learn the words or things in some way. And then you're practicing them in some kind of contrived setting so that you, okay, I can actually say this handful of things relatively without effort. I think the real challenge is getting from the learner resource to the (laughs) authentic content. There's this divide. I think there's more and more these days of tools to kind of help bridge that divide, but it's still, it's a, it's a jump. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think, especially, you know, I know you focus on uh, Mandarin and, and Japanese. I think in like the Asian languages, that gulf can be huge, you know, like my, my Mandarin is not like anywhere near perfection. So I don't want to be claiming anything like that, but I do remember there being a long period of time where in terms of words that I know, like words that I like, Oh, what's this? And I, Oh, it's Mm -hmm. this, that I would know far more words in Mandarin than Spanish, like maybe four or five times as much. But if you throw me in a speaking situation, I would be noticeably less fluent than I would be in Spanish. And I think that that's just largely because you can get by on the cognates and, you know, it's just, it's a lot easier. Whereas like, you know, Mandarin, every single place name has its own like Mandarin pronunciation and, and, you know, and, and, you have to do so much more work to to say it properly with the tones and things yeah. like that. So there's just a lot more going on. I wonder, and I don't know, I haven't read any data to support this, but it's just yeah. a hypothesis that you need more reps to build that automaticity we talked about with Mandarin In the beginning, reps. for sure. Yeah. I think it's, you know, what's interesting though, like as you build a base in the language, then you you leverage it in the same way that you would leverage English in learning Spanish. You would leverage your early Chinese and learning your later Chinese. Because I remember when I started learning it, again, this is also just me speculating, this is not based on any data, but 
when I started learning it and someone would tell you a new word, it would just feel like just this atrocious task to memorize it. Like, I was like, oh my God, how am I going to remember these tones and these letters and this kind of thing? And now when people talk, they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's this from this and this from this. You're like, oh yeah, okay. Now that makes sense. And it's like the making sense part of it. It takes a while to get to, but then when people say, you know, now I, I can often pick up new vocabulary organically in a context just because it makes sense. I, I think I was watching this video uh, and unfortunately I haven't actually spoken Chinese out loud, speaking of direct practice, I haven't spoken it out loud in so long because of uh, the pandemic. So my pronunciation is probably deteriorated significantly, but I remember watching a video and it was talking about the concept of false negatives and false positives in mm-hmm. Chinese. And they used, uh, I want to say, uh, yang and yin for like the, yeah. you know, like positive and negative right. in that context, right. as opposed to like, you know, positive and negative particles is a different thing. And it's just, as soon as they said yang and yin, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I didn't know that. I, like if you had told me what it was, I, I didn't know that. Like I, you know, I, if you gave me a list of which ones it was, but the, the making sense greatly speeds the acquisition because when you, when, oh, well, the, oh, of course it's that, you know, that yeah. makes sense. You know, ah, that's, that's normal. And that becomes the mental hook that you remember things on. And so I think having that knowledge base is really important. And so as you get better, I think you learn faster. I think that's one reason to learn the characters too, is because they act as these like semantic hooks for so 100%. many words yep. that if every G is the same G to you and you don't distinguish them right. um, semantically by like the different characters they belong to, uh, you are missing out on one of those tools. That was something I missed uh, learning uh, Korean. And some sometimes I was like, you know, I wish they would use the Hanja more because right. <laughs> I could actually like ping down, well, which one are you talking yeah. about? Like, where does it come from? Now it's just a sound like it is in English or something. Right, you know? right. So that's actually a question I want to ask you too, having yeah. then learned Mandarin and then moving to Korean. How helpful was that shared Sino-Korean vocabulary? Yeah, I think if I got further into Korean, my Korean's my worst as sort of in the aforementioned, uh, you know, like spending three months there eight years ago, exhausted. I do, I did learn a, a decent amount of Korean, but uh, I'm certainly not at like any bragging level of Korean, especially now not having practiced it recently. But I think one of the things that I, I frequently would do when I was having conversations with a Korean tutor is that you try to say the Chinese word in a Korean way and yeah. it works like 50% of the time. Yeah. Uh, the challenge is that the pronunciation of the cognates is so different that I think if I was at a higher level, I would have the systematic mapping of this is tends to be said this way because it's not obvious. Mm. But like, it's kind of one of those things. It's a like the young and, you know, you think that like once you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, that, OK, that makes sense. That was a frequent occurrence, especially if it's an abstract noun. I think I forget what it is. There's something like 50 percent of the Korean words have a synetic origin and they tend to be like the literary words, kind of like the way that like English has a lot of French words. I think it's a very similar kind of relationship. And so whenever you're learning like kind of an abstract noun that is more literary, it's probably pretty similar. The the challenge though, is just that saying it the Chinese way, no one understands anything you're saying. They're not similar enough phonetically for you to like get away with that. But I think if you learn more, you would definitely see a lot of overlap. The, The disadvantage of course, is that the Korean grammar is nothing like Chinese grammar. So that that's a real headache in the yeah. beginning. I'm hoping my Japanese will give me enough of a. Yeah, I think they are like just yeah. even just getting in that whole verb, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. SOV structure and, and uh, particles. A lot of, it's uh, like very similar, yeah. you know, yeah. like you have a subject particle and an object particle. So yeah. hopefully that will give me yeah, a Yeah. So start. again, people who are better at Korean will probably be able to chime in and give you better advice than, than I could. Definitely intermediate stage. I think it would help okay. quite a bit. I think in the beginning, you're dealing mostly with the Korean words and the, the grammar was like what we were dealing with at the beginning and all the really simple words are tend to be native Korean words. Right. And that's true of a lot of uh, European languages though, as well, that like the basic words are different mm-hmm. between English and Spanish. Spanish, but you know, creatividad and stuff like that <laughs> right. for free, right? <laughs> right, right. What did you change other than the obvious environmental differences between your year of no English and then learning Macedonian at home? I, I know you mentioned and you guys had agreed for important things. You would obviously use yeah. English. Other than that, what, what were the differences? One of the big differences is that it was confined to our relationship, which given the situation we were in, this is kind of like pandemic, everyone's stuck at home, we're not hanging yeah. out with friends, was easier than it it might have been in another setting. I think the problem is that if I'm imagining we're being highly social and we're like going to parties and we're doing this kind of stuff. And then we're in some setting where there's friends around. So we speak in English and then transitioning back at home to the other language can be challenging. The other thing I found is that it was actually, I think a lot harder on my wife than it was on me. Mm. Uh, doing it. And I think that's surprising, but I think most people will be like, well, obviously it's a lot harder for the speaker, but it's also really hard for the person that has to speak to you because they're used to you understanding what they're saying all the time. And so that can create some difficulties. So there was definitely points when it was, it was my wife being like, no, 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 we need a timeout. I can't deal with this right now of like right. the trying to pantomime some discussion we're having. So I think the, the main advice I would have is be lighthearted about it. Don't, don't be too serious, especially if it's an important relationship. Relationship, you really have to make it easier on the other person too. Because I think one of the things that I learned is that if it's an established relationship, it is very much often that the case, it's going to be maybe harder for them than you think it is. So I think mm-hmm. if, if let's say you, let's say you're a native English speaker and you have a roommate or a partner that speaks some other language that you want to learn, the assumption is going to be, well, I'm the one learning the language. So like everything's hard for me and make that your problem. But you have to realize that the it's communication is always shared. So they're also mm-hmm. experiencing the same thing, but inverted. They're experiencing the difficulty of telling you something and then you don't understand, or they're experiencing the difficulty of I'm normally able to talk to this person and I, I find it difficult to talk to this person. So we did it for a month. And I think we were thinking, well, maybe we'll extend it a little bit, but we only ended up extending it for a couple of weeks and then we paused. And then I think that was not so much about the level of Macedonian that I reached in that time period, but much more that, you know, my wife and I have this really long relationship going Mm -hmm. back like 15 years, actually, you know, we were friends for like eight years before we started dating. And so we have this really long relationship in English. And so it it is hard to just like, oh, well, it's just the same doing it in another language. And so I think that 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 makes a big difference. I think that it was also useful to do it alongside having a tutor. So I had like a dedicated tutor that I was talking to almost every day. And that was also really helpful as well. So I think do it for little bursts, do it maybe in set situations, set time periods. Mm -hmm. And I think don't treat it as like necessarily a sprint. I think that the approach that we took of it's this from zero, hundred percent continuously, the main motivation for that, which I think is not always transparent when we talk about the project, the main motivation for that was establishing new friendships in a particular linguistic context. And uh, that's a specific problem that's not true for most language learning settings. So for most language learning settings, there's no real strong rationale for doing 100% all the time immersion with no exceptions. And even when we were on the trip, if I had to like suggest my advice differently, it would be the no English rule, probably like pretty stringent, except for emergencies. If you're doing it the first month or two is probably most important. And then after you can probably lighten up a little bit, just because it's about getting that context around you. Right. right? And then after you're, after you're three months, 
months in, then if you have a conversation in English, it doesn't matter. It's right. just that if you rely on having English conversations, turns out all your friends speak to you in English from yeah. like, you know, you're, you're there for six months and you, you've you been speaking in English 95% of the time, which was not your goal. That English bubble. And it often ends up being an expat <laughs> bubble too. Yeah. Then and then you really are your host. <laughs> so if somebody's just starting out in a language, listening to this and they want to get started, what is your mm-hmm. first bit of advice? Absolute first step today. Uh, well, if you're looking for learning resources, you're at zero. I usually recommend Pimsler. Pimsler's okay. a bit expensive. I know there was an alternative someone had recommended that was similar to Pimsler, but free. So maybe Google that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was called. I've never used it. But... Public libraries usually have Pimsler. All right. Well, there you go. That's a good tip because that's the main disadvantage of Pimsler. But Pimsler is usually my go-to resource. And I would say try to book a tutoring session within your first month. I usually have a little routine that I do with the tutor where I sort of say, okay, what I want to do is just like try speaking to you in this language. Going to use Google Translate. Mm-hmm. Going to do stuff like this. Uh, I'm going to stop and be like, okay, now English aside, how do you say this? I'm going to do that, but just humor me because some tutors don't get it. They don't understand. They've right. not done it this way before. And if you can establish that as a rhythm, that's really beneficial too. And then everything else is just kind of gravy. Like you, you maybe you want to get a book that explains the language. So, you know, you teach yourself whatever it tends to be a good overview of the language and get flashcards. Like we were talking about, do like everything else is kind of gravy, but, but that's usually my starting point. But I think in the background, I think it's not something you do immediately the first day, but it's something that you want to keep as a really near term goal is I want to be in a situation where I am using this language to speak, even if it's for five minutes, even if it's for 10 minutes with another speaker, I got to hold that as like, that's something I'm trying to get to. I know that Benny Lewis has made a big thing about like doing this the very first day. I don't think that's necessary, but I think it's very easy to let it go on way too long. Right. So it's, it's, it is a fine tuning point, but I would say that the earlier you can do that generally, the better main benefit. I think of the Benny Lewis advice of doing it on the first day is that you want to get the fear of it done because yeah, zero ability. And then having a, you're not going to have a conversation. No, but there is a social fear, a social phobia of speaking a language inarticulately with a stranger or with another person. And the more you can be like, okay, I'm sitting here with you and I'm going to try. And then it's like, okay, I didn't die. It's not so bad. Now, okay, now I need to learn all the words and do it. So it it kind of, it starts you off. And you can often be surprised with how much you can communicate with a a small base. So just with like, you know, a handful of words, you can, you can, you can, you know, sort of inch through a conversation. And even that will be like your reference point of like, okay, that went like that. Now time to like do some learning and studying and attempt it again the next time. And if you have like a, okay, we're able to carry on a 15 minute conversation, then some form of immersive activity where you're like, okay, regularly for hours a week, you're using the language, that's going to be your best bet to to eventually get to a conversational level. Kind of just to wrap up, is there anything else from ultra learning, any of the other principles that you want to highlight that you think would be really helpful for people? Oh, wow. I think we, we, we summarized everything that I feel about language learning uh, pretty well, but I do think that, you know, other people might benefit from some of the other ideas in the book. I, I did try to do my best to review a lot of cognitive science. I know uh, we didn't really talk about retrieval practice that yes. much, but I think retrieval is, is super important for language learning because it's so memory-based. right? And I think that's one of the real challenges is how do you get something into your memory? And I think if you don't really understand retrieval as a sort of a fundamental principle of memory, it's very easy to go about that the wrong way. Uh, it's very easy to be like, well, you know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this over and over again.
again? Like, mm-hmm. why is it not sticking in my head? Um, and, and so I, that's the basic idea behind flashcards and even a lot of the productive practice that we're, we're right. talking about where you're producing speech and, and this kind of thing. So that's another principle I'd suggest. So anyone who wants to get the book, they can look through there's nine different principles that all have different kind of ideas. Not all of them are directly relevant to language learning, but I think language learning is a good microcosm for learning in general. There's, it so. kind of covers yeah. a lot of the bases. So yeah. I think it's, it's, it's one of my favorite topics to think about because it makes concrete so many ideas that are uh, hard to talk about in art or science or something like that. Right, right, right. Very cool. And uh, James Clear wrote the forward of the book, (laughs) who I'm also a huge fan of. Yeah. Well, pleasure to talk to you. Um, any last words of encouragement? You know what? Just uh, just do it. I think if you're you're interested in learning a language, I think the only obstacle is going to be, you know, putting in the time, uh, finding some way to make it enjoyable, finding some way to make it something you actually use, something you actually do something with. Thank you for listening to the Language Mastery Show. Again, you can find show notes at languagemastery.com forward slash show. Before you continue on with your day, take a quick moment to choose one small tip or takeaway from today's episode to apply in your life. Listening to podcasts is a great first step, but the real magic only happens when you translate information into action. Also, if you want to help keep this show going, there are three key things you can do to help. Number one, leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. Number two, join my free newsletter called Language Mastery Monday, in which you get weekly tips, tools, and resources for building an effective language immersion environment anywhere in the world. And number three, if you're learning Japanese or Mandarin Chinese, check out my detailed immersion guides called Master Japanese and Master Mandarin. Both provide step-by-step instructions for how to immerse yourself in Japanese or Chinese right where you are. Learn more at JapaneseMastery.com and ChineseMastery.com. And you can use the code SHOW, that's S-H-O-W, to get 25% off either guide. All right, we'll see you next week for another episode of the Language Mastery Show. Until then, happy learning.